there's no such thing as retirement. I, I washed that off a long time ago. Like I'm just going to get up and I'm going to try to do a thing that I, that I enjoy the most every day. And, and this seems to be something that, that really challenges me. And so I've stuck to it. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. What gets you up in the morning? I know for me, one of the things is my continuing mission here with the podcast to meet farmers, talk with farmers all over the state and share their personal stories of how they got to do what they do, um, all the humanity that they put into the food that we then eat. For Andrew Schultz, our guest again this week, what gets him up every morning is the challenge of growing amazing wine grapes and in often cases growing them in a way that maybe no one has ever tried before. He's always pushing the envelope doing something different. He gets pretty technical in this part two this week. And honestly, I'm not sure if he may have shared some trade secrets in the conversation, uh, really in, in how he does what he does, but he's that kind of a guy. He's really open in what he does. He's not trying to hide anything at all. Um, so he shares a lot about the technical aspect of growing wine grapes. Um, so don't, but don't be intimidated by all the technical details. Maybe people more familiar with some of that stuff. We'll really get into that, but just listen to all the, I mean, if you hear anything from all this technical stuff, how he handles irrigation and managing the crop and the soil and all of that, if you take anything from that, it's just understanding the challenge that someone growing food is up against. And even a non-staple like wine, how much goes into that between the science and the art and people and and everything. Um, really, really eye-opening to me as a farm kid to hear all the particulars. And so I really enjoyed this conversation myself. I hope that you do too, from whatever background you're coming from, just to appreciate what goes into growing the incredible wine grapes produced here in Washington. Of course, as Andrew said, I think last week and, and says again this week too, so much of what you taste in that wine that you buy in the store is a result of how the grapes are grown, the soil that they were in, the weather. So many things um, are determined by a grower like Andrew and his team at Brothers in Farms. They're out in Benton City, by the way. If you didn't catch last week, that's part one. You may want to do that for some background, even though I'm sure you can appreciate some of the things he ends up talking about here in part two. Um, and my name is Dylan Honkoop. I should mention that um, host here of Real Food, Real People podcast. I grew up on a raspberry farm here in Western Washington. And like I said earlier, I'm just kind of on a personal mission to go all over Washington state and share the real stories of the real farmers who are producing our food. So I, I really do hope you, and I, I think you will enjoy this conversation this week. What's your future? What's your vision for Brothers and Farms and what you guys are doing with custom viticulture? I mean, that has to be closely tied then with the future of these wine markets and this region and all the stuff comes together, right? Yes. Um, what I forgot to mention, which I was going to mention earlier is even in this marketplace, you know, for example, 
um, work with one property, they sell their grapes for about twice what anybody else um, sells them for. And even in this quote unquote, you know, tight or bulked out marketplace, those grapes are sold out. And, um, and so what I see on the higher end growing side of the people that are more discerning is, you know, yeah, absolutely. They want a value and there's ways that they can get there and they have a product line to build. But for some of these real particular things, they're still being particular on where they buy them from and who's growing them and, and what the values are behind growing those. And, uh, so they are still purchasing up so that it, so that, you know, they're buying the, that, that farmer's consistency to be able to produce this thing for their, for their customers every year. And, price you know it obviously matters at some level but it doesn't matter as much and so um you know that's the same same for true this is kind of our niche you know we're willing to do things that um other companies aren't or maybe they're so big that they uh, aren't or they can't um you know so it's like the battleship maneuvering in a bathtub type theory so where we can turn a corner fast and you know they may they may not be able to turn a corner fast or maybe they're not uh, willing to take a, a certain type of uh, measurement to be able to manage a field. And so th- that's that's how we're hammering down into our niche is being willing to do the things or listen to the customer. I mean, the whole reason I started this business was because a company came in and they bought out, um, you know, a, a family f- uh, vineyard that um, had, uh, you know, they, they were like 75 years old. They were ready to sell. So they sold. They got their uptick you know, on their property. I think they bought it at 250 or $2,500 an acre or something. They sold it for, uh, would have been, you know, two or 300 X that value in the end. Um, and the person that's going to buy that's a company. And, but that company, when they came in, they wanted it farmed a certain way. And the people that existed in Washington that were farming those properties, they said, we aren't willing to do those things. And anywhere somebody says we aren't willing to do it is an opportunity for somebody to start a business yeah. and go do something because, and that's essentially all we did. We said, Hey, what do you want done? We'll listen to you and, and we can build a company to, to service your needs. And so that's essentially what we're looking for is, is people like that. And, and, uh, and we've been successful at finding those people. And, and so as the future grows, you know, um, there's going to be more people asking more discerning questions and we want to put ourselves in the position to be able to answer those questions for those companies or those individuals that, that, that need those questions answered. You guys are kind of new kids on the block to this world. And, and even though the Washington wine world is younger than like California and other places, there's still some people who've been around here for a while. What's the reaction been to you guys coming in, doing Uh, things different? You know, I mean, you know, to be honest, I don't pay attention to a lot of stuff, whether it's pundits on the sideline or whatever it is. Um, You know, we just try to keep our head down and do the right thing every day. And, um, you know, but yeah, you, I mean, you hear things and, uh, you know, um, probably some of the comments that, you know, not that they were direct comments towards me or whatever, but, you know, I've had conversations with guys have been growing in the state for a long time and, and, um, you know, uh, one of the comments I had was, you know, well, why do you take, you know, you know, we don't even really know what to do with this data, you know, necessarily when, when, when people take these things and, and so, you know, what are we going to do with it? And it's a waste of time. And it Cause you're collecting all this, you've got spreadsheets upon spreadsheets of info that you've gathered, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and essentially, you know, and my point was, is, you know, let's say that none of it's worth anything, right? Like we can't do anything with it. Let's just say for a second, which we think we can, but we say, right. let's say we can't, you know, if we have those points in the future, we're going to be able to, 
we're going to be able to go back and learn something from what we've done in the past because like we've taken the data points and um, you know, some of this and to, I guess to go back cut part of our program or why we, why we do what we do or how we got to how we do what we do is I have developed an irrigation model essentially over the last 10 years. And the company that came in that, you know, we started our business under mainly, um, you know, that company, that guy had been working on the same issues for about 35 years and, and uh, him and I saw eye to eye on one of the major factors. And, you know, when you look at a, a great plant in the world, and this is the way I looked at it, it took me a couple of years to answer this question. What's, you know, what's the most important factor when you start looking at chaos theory, which is what, you know, um, farming is like, <laughs> you know, what's the, what's the most important factor? What's the thing that I can change at the fulcrum, you know, to, to change the whole picture at the end of it. And, and so I started dialing down I said, okay, well, there's, you know, three main things in a grape's life is, you know, sunlight, uh, it's nitrogen and it's water. And um, sunlight comes in two forms, that which we can't control, how much heat or how much sun hits the property in an individual year uh, or timing-wise. And, um, and, then, and then there's the amount of sunlight that's inside the cam- canopy. And, if, and it, you know, in Washington State, what I look at as control is I, or any time in a system is what I look is how much control you have is, is you look at the extremes. So we don't irrigate it at all. The plant dies or it's significantly reduced in size and the canopy is, you know, 5, 10 inches tall. And on the other side of it, um, we irrigate it all we want and the thing's, you know, 60, 80 inches long and it's blocked out all the sunlight and, and the grapes are never going to ripen. Mm. And, uh, the answer is somewhere in between. So, uh, you know, we can manage that and that's managed largely with water. And, uh, then you go to nitrogen nitrogen stops in the soil and the out with the absence of water. And, uh, so anything subservient to something else is not as important as the master, which means that water is the number one key. And so then the question becomes, how can we manage water and what do we do with water? And, uh, and so then we get into vine spacing, uh, mainly in row, not necessarily from one row to the next, but in row and, um, and then, uh, and then timing and, and what the soil actually does. And what I found on the soil, at least in my opinion, is it's less about, you know, this real sexy version that they give you in the media about, you know, the, oh, this minerality comes through and all these other things. Really, what has the biggest effect is, you know, like the physical properties of that soil. How fast does the water go in? How fast does the water come out? You know, do this, does the, uh, does this, is the soil compact enough or have enough clay or silt, uh, to actually limit the root growth? Um, what happens when you have gravel in it and you know, that, that structure has changed. I mean, those are the things that, you know, make the biggest impact. And, and so we kind of hammered down on that. And, uh, when we started working with the company from California, they came in, they gave us some data sheets on some other things to measure to understand. So, uh, we started doing that. Um, I built a program for them, which they hadn't done or, or we hadn't done for measuring the breathing of the plant. And, and that was important. And, uh, but the models that existed out there in the world before us were all models that were created from these areas that have, you know, 40 inches of rain a year. And their, and their model basically said that, you know, in the beginning of the year, you start out with all this water in the soil and there may be some more that comes. And, and at some point you, you can not irrigate it enough that you reach some, you know, stress threshold that's key. And then, and then you go back to irrigation and, and, you know, that's what quality is. And, um, and yet, you know, in, in Washington, like we could reach that point by the time the grapes go into bloom. So, so now what do you do? Right. And so we took that some stress of, point of lack of water. Yes. Which yeah. does what to the plant that you, you, you want that to do what? Just, 
just like a human, you know, I mean, or any other biological process, you, you take something and you put it underneath stress and then, and then what happens? And in the plants version, you know, uh, skins thicken, um, you know, they create more color to withstand more sunlight. Um, you know, which these are all polyphenolics and things like that, that build up in the plant and that the berry size is smaller. Um, cause basically the, the, the plant just wants to reproduce. And so you're using it against its rules. And, and once you reach certain biological points, the plant can't walk back through that in, in an individual season. So once that plant tip shuts down on those shoots, it's, you can't get them to start again. Once it's completely shut down, they'll shoot, you know, side shoots if you go back to full irrigation at the wrong time or something like that, but the tip won't regrow. And, and so we're kind of using the plant against, against itself and there's ways that we've measured. So we had to go back and we had to take these parameter readings. We had to move them down as we had to say, okay, well, we have this different system. Like, like what's the most efficient way to use that system? And, and so, and then are these stress levels that they said are these stress levels, are they real? Are the numbers the same? So we started looking at research correlation and all that stuff to, to, to what that is. And, and what we found was, you know, and to go back to your point on what happens is, you know, it's like a human, you know, and this is the way we look at irrigation. It's really frequency and timing when you think about it. Um, and, uh, um, so if you decide to go to the gym, like once every two weeks and work out super freaking hard, right. Um, after about a six weeks or a year or something like that, you probably won't have created much of a biological reaction with yourself, at least not as much as if you decided to go to the gym and work out moderately five days a week. Um, you're going to see a lot more, especially after about 21 days plants the same way. So that's what we do is we kind of, we've kind of figured out a, a really nice stress, stress threshold. We hold that plant there for about 21 days and then, uh, and then we're able to start building the water back up in the soil. Once that plant walks through that door, it can't walk back through. And, um, and we go back to full irrigation and many times, you know, this puts us in, in a really good spot in Washington state, um, where we've built back the water up in the soil, uh, at least on that top 12 inches to where, um, you know, as soon as the heat comes, like the plants can withstand it and they don't, they don't have any issues with, you know, sour shrivel or overstress or something like that when, when the stress hits the mm. plant. So, yep. Is anybody else doing this, this way? Not in particular. And, and, uh, we chose that. Uh, that particular measurement, there's other ones that are on the cusp, some of these micro tensiometers and things like that, that can be measured on a 15 minute basis that are, that, that are the future. The technology is not quite there. Um, we're also looking at stuff that, you know, be able to integrate these into, uh, basically like A and N, like, um, these, uh, neural networks that, you know, can self learn for a specific location and stuff like that. Um, so if we do that, we completely automate it, but we chose these, uh, measurements, you know, um, specifically because they see past certain things like, you know, a lot of guys will read, you know, the measurement of how much water is in the soil, but that doesn't mean anything. If you have phylloxera in the soil, which is a real issue in Washington, uh, you know, say it's starting last year, but the reality is it was here before that. Um, you know, but, uh, those attack the roots and of course that keeps the plant from uptaking enough water. Um, so is that a bacteria or it's a, it's a root louse basically. So it's a fly, you mm. know, that lives on the, and, and they pupate and all that live on those uh, roots. And then they, you know, we mm. haven't found the flying version yet. They're still moving in Washington state vineyards, mm. um, nonetheless. And some of them, and it's wiped out, you know, the, uh, the California industry, I think once or twice, and then it's wiped out France twice. Mm. Um, and, and 
two different times anyway. And, um, but, uh, and you know, we're largely own rooted here, so we don't have any root stocks or anything, which is a real benefit to Washington to a certain extent or, um, but really less is known about that. But the, but we, you know, there's nematodes that, you know, mute the tip, the mute, mute the tips of all the, uh, the small roots that are out there. And then that affects the water uptake, you know, the plant, they mute the tips and they lease the roots. And, and, um, and so that basically stresses them out and you don't get as big a root network. So it doesn't have the ability to pull out as much water over time, especially when you start farming ground, those nematodes come up in population. And, um, so there's issues like that. There's, um, cold damage issues and everything. And, but if you, you know, so it's like, if you read what's in the soil, it doesn't necessarily mean like, like what the plant's actually seeing. And so that's why we measure the breathing of the plant. And, um, you know, cause that tells us exactly what that plant's seeing. And this is independent of, you know, once you start getting into the rootstock conversation, these, you know, these rootstocks that, you know, are going to be going in at in real heavy numbers in Washington state, each one of those rootstocks deals with water differently. And so that's going to affect, you know, the root mass below and, and how that plant's breathing on the top of it. And, and so those are the things. So that's why we want to measure what that plant's actually seeing. And, uh, and then we back that up and the best way to look at it is, none of these things. And I think some of the colleagues out there, at least the people I've talked to have, you know, have, have pointed to some of the measurements we take and they're like, Oh, you know, that's not a cornerstone and you know, that's not the magic pill. And, and in reality, like none of this stuff is a magic pill and it's not why we're doing it. The reality is, is, is how you figure out where you're at in black space as you take as many data points as possible. And then you can try triangulate your, your most probable location and make a decision from there. And that's essentially what we're doing. We have about four or five measurements that we take um, during the year to understand what the long-term health of the plant is uh, to keep it doing the same thing that we want it to do. And there's some uh, indications there with, you know, with our protocol that we put in place. And so we've had to compensate for our compensation and, um, and uh, anyways, uh, so it's really fun to be able to do it and it's challenging to see. And what's really cool is when you're able to come back and reproduce these every year and on different varieties and on different properties. And we've done it on about nine different soil types. Uh, we played in the rocks last year. We played in, um, you know, which is a really high end wine, re uh, wine region and a kind of an interesting wine region of Washington. We played in that last year. I found out that soil is actually um, just as, if not more, uh, predictable than, um, some of the other soils in Washington. Um, and predominantly everybody thinks that it's a super wet soil. And to be honest, I, uh, we did a really good job about getting the water out of there last year and, mm. um, faster than we did on the Ellisford silt loam, which is their stuff that they consider is really high end down there. And, uh, the warden's nice. Um, and some of these different soil types have these different periods of time where things pop up and some of these nematodes too, even by variety, um, you know, typically speaking, there's some, there's some really over vigorous Merlot blocks out there and there's some really under vigorous Merlot blocks. And, and what we've found on some of these under, uh, under vigorous Merlot blocks is the nematodes for whatever reason tend to like them, uh, versus other varieties over time. And, and how that ends up coming to fruition is, um, you know, sometime in the back end or middle of April when you wouldn't even think about, you know, or sorry, not April, but May, when you wouldn't even think about doing, um, an irrigation because you think that there's water in the soil. Um, those plants pop hot for having a lot of stress and you go back in, you do one really small, like four hour irrigation plant goes back to normal and you get everything you want. It's, it's really cool to, to see in action. Crazy. And, and still the stuff 
about water is boggling my mind because everything else seems to be focused on making sure you have enough water and always bringing in enough. And your management isn't just that. And in fact, quite often it's about making sure you don't have too much, which is (laughs) not what I'm used to at all, but it it makes sense when you explain the science of, of what, what's actually going on with the plant there. Yeah. In our case, we're, you know, based on numbers I've seen or whatever, we're probably 20 to 25% and in, in, in a lot of cases, less water than say a standard farmer that's trying to grow decent grapes. Mm. Um, so, you know, some guys will say 12 to 15 inches a year or something like that. And I mean, I've grown, I've grown some crops on as little as eight or nine inches in a year and had excellent results um, wow. with those, uh, with those grapes too. So that's an environmental impact even there possibly as well. Yeah, but you know, on the farming level, yeah, I mean, absolutely, it's got an environmental. But you know, from an from an economic impact standpoint too, it's it's fantastic. You know, if we if we can avoid creating problems that we don't have to go in there, you know, find solutions for with either chemicals or um, extra inputs, like we're absolutely going to do that. I mean, every time, hands down. And you know, one of the things I like to point to is a property that I ran for about five years. When I, you know, and I was tracking. Um, all the different forms of labor on that property um, and actually all the properties we were running for that guy. But, uh, but I would break them down at the end of every year. Cause otherwise when you look at labor, it's just this like big $600,000 pile of money. But when you start breaking it down to whether it was done with, you know, handwork or tractor work or what type of handwork or this part of the season or the other part of the season, when you start breaking down those numbers and you look at them over a five year period, we went in and this is when I was developing that protocol what we ended up doing in that business was we actually dropped $50,000 of labor off of a 100 acre property. And, and what's important about that is, you know, that's $50,000 that we saved, but you know, and when I look at labor and this comes from an employee standpoint, you know, you don't want to, you don't necessarily want to reduce your labor um, because people's lives and families and all that stuff are infected. So uh, affected. And so what we did in that particular case was, um, we still had some acres to develop. And so we took that same crew and, um, you know, where they would have been working on one property to do these certain things. And we built another 35 acres over, you know, a two year period uh, on, on this other property. And that allowed us to put the time into building this other, you know, or extra or additional, you know, revenue stream for the business. And, and, and then once that came to fruition, you know, we were farming uh, 175 acres of grapes with the exact same number of people we were farming 110 or 115 mm-hmm. to begin with. And, uh, and so our efficiency, and this is one of the things I like looking at is how many men per acre does it take to farm it? And, and the year I left, we were farming one man for every 15 acres. And one to ten is considered pretty pretty efficient in in hand in hand done farming. So uh, so that was a uh, you know this is the kind of power that we have with you know water or some of our inputs and and I think it's an important thing in life in general like whether it's farming or anything else like when you look at it and you say okay hey you know everybody's you know ready for you know the new magic bullet or the thing out there that's going to get us to whatever level or something the reality is is what we should be doing is saying you know what can i do better with what i have right now and um and how can i make me more efficient or you know better person or whatever it is right that applies to so many things yep yeah absolutely what would you tell the consumer out there that's kind of skeptical what's really going on on our farms here in this state uh 
in general in Washington state because of our dry conditions where the majority of the stuff is grown, at least on this side. Uh, and I don't know much about the farming on the West side. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'd leave that to you. Uh, <laughs> but on this side, um, I mean, man, we are, uh, because of the lack of water and the no rain and stuff like that and, and having good growing soils, I mean, uh, by and large, like, uh, we are really efficient and we're using, uh, we're way more sustainable than a lot of growing regions. And, uh, and I think that's a huge benefit to Washington across the board. I mean, you know, as a, as a case in point, you know, some of these other regions, you know, they're spraying, you know, um, eight to 12 times in a season and the average farmer over here, even for the production stuff is at six, you know, um, and we've been getting away for the last, for the last five years. Um, I've, I've sprayed, uh, three times per season and two of those aren't even chemicals. They were like, you know, sulfur in the beginning of the year and then some oil, um, you know, in the, in the mid part and then, and then one pointed chemical that attacks only mildew. And then after that, like we don't do anything. <laughs> Do you do any organic? Um, I don't do organic, although I've been, uh, I had a client that talked to me within the last uh, two months and uh, they're really interested in, in trying to produce a, about a hundred acre organic, um, you know, grape vineyard. Um, and I, th you know, I look at it as like, it's a challenge for me. I mean, there's definitely things to, um, you know, but I think, you know, with good irrigation practices and pruning practices and stuff like that, I think we could get some organic grapes and, and really not have to spray them at all if, if, you know, or, or very, very little, um, if, if we even did. And, and so I kind of, cause I think that that could happen here in Washington and there's definitely some guys that have been doing it in the state. Um, I'd like to do it on a high end level and see what happens with that. Cause I think it'd be a really fun project to see, you know, how efficient we can get and how much we can actually reduce as far as inputs are concerned. So, yeah. So maybe here in the future, we'll be working with somebody on, on that. Can the, the food consumer trust the food that they're getting from the state? Can they trust the food they get from the state? I, I mean, I think so. I mean, I, I don't know what's, I don't know what's done in other places, but you know, with the, as I dealt with tree fruit and stuff like that too, when I was um, up at the, when I was farming in the Yakima area and, um, you know, the U S in general, we're being held to these, you know, these global gap standards and they are a pain in the rear end to deal with. You know, I mean, I got audited every year and, um, and I mean, there's some stuff that's even on, on a ridiculous level, you know, I mean, for example, the, you know, we had to test all the water sources, you know, as far as, uh, irrigation water, even for, you know, E. Coli bacteria and stuff. And for the, for the, uh, the lay consumer that may not be privy to the um to the uh, the research behind that is um uh, they looked at i mean we're talking astronomical levels of of um e coli and water like somewhere around 1200 you know colony forming units and stuff like that and, and they were putting it straight on and seeing if it actually went into the apple and what they found is even at even at these you know astronomical rates that don't even exist in an open ditch um, in the state, um, they would literally have to put it on like that day. And it was more, you know, coming in through water, actually sitting on the apple than it, than it was inside of the fruit. And, and, um, you know, as a case in point, you know, Washington state farmers, like, or farmers in general, at least to my knowledge, like we don't irrigate like at least a couple of days before you go pick. Cause you don't want the ground to be soft when you're in there trying to carry around, you know, bins yeah. and stuff like that. So there's no water even going on these things. And, and in many cases, like, 
you know, it's during the fall where you've cut, cut back the irrigation and maybe like once a week anyway. And, uh, you know, but I mean, we we're being held to these standards, you know, of, why do you of, think there's all a concern about that? Um, you know, the, the biggest part of the concern is, you know, these, these, um, these other countries that are producing fruit and, and produce in the world, um, you know, there's definitely, you know, I mean, apples aren't one of them, but there's definitely some, uh, some vegetables out there that are really prone to having issues like, you know, E. coli. And one of those is lettuce. And, you know, of course it's low growing and, and then there's a ton of irrigation and there's water that's held in between those leaves and stuff like that. And I don't know whether it actually goes inside the lettuce or, um, cause I'm not in that industry necessarily, but you know, um, you know, the standards that these other countries are held to isn't, as strict as what the u.s is but you know i mean um you know we're required to have bathrooms for you know so many people and you know cleaned on a regular basis and stuff like that i mean that's stuff that you know is standard and has been for you know before global gap even existed and uh and so largely our produce is is done right and and um you know at least from that standpoint or from a health standpoint so um you know, it's when some of those logistics are dropped or, or whatever, um, that, you know, you largely start having issues and, and by and large, I mean, there's large farmers in Washington, but, um, you know, nowhere near what there is in other places, you know, are workers being taken care of? Well, I know that's a, a concern as well. You know, are, are people being compensated fairly and treated humanely as they're doing hard work in the field? I was just I was just back in Iowa um, at a meeting not too long ago um, where they had and this is a, a land expo meeting and and uh, so they had a lot of big wigs there and people that farm thousands of acres over there for soybeans and corn and all that stuff and um, you know I happened to stop by a bar you know when I when I got there that night and I was I just wanted a pint after flying <laughs> over there and so I sat down at this Irish pub and I was having a pint and I chatted with a bartender for a minute and I said hey man you know what's the minimum wage over here and they were like you know it's was 725 which is a federal rate you know and uh i was like are you are you you know crapping me <laughs> quote unquote and, uh-huh. and uh he said no and i said you gotta be joking me like our you know our minimum wage here this year is 1350 that's one of the highest in the states and uh um you know and so the uh you know and Arguably, you'd say hey, cost of living is probably a little bit increased too. But yeah, by and large, you know, Washington's doing a really good job of of keeping pace and making sure that people are being compensated correctly, or at least as correctly as possible. Um, and um, you know, and you see that in the guys uh, here um, in in Washington. I feel like uh, a lot of the farmers are being treated uh, treated fairly and. And you know, as we transition into you know more mechanical stuff and uh, what that does is that deletes jobs, but those guys don't go away. They still have a lot of experience. You know, they learn how to work on those pieces of equipment. They learn how to operate them and, and they're out there just doing more acres, but you know, getting paid a little bit better and, and, and doing a little bit of work. That's probably less hard. And <laughs> from the standpoint of, of that stuff, they're not out, you know, like when I was a kid, like, and not that I spent a lot of time in, but you know, my dad used to tell me stories about, you know, the, um, you know, how they used to pick, watermelon you go out there and you you stand in a line one guy tossed 20 pound watermelon to the next guy and the next guy tossed to him and the next guy to him and it <laughs> went all the way into a, you know the back of a truck some guy would be catching them up there and stacking them and and uh you know so the back-breaking work isn't it isn't back-breaking anymore uh at least in large part so what about environmental sustainability 
uh, are we doing what we can here in Washington? Yeah, as far as as far as I'm as far as I'm concerned, yeah, absolutely. Um, and actually, the chemicals and things that are out there are um, really good. You know, we've seen with a lot of stuff that we've done, even though we've reduced normal uh, pesticides or chemicals or something like that, just by you know our irrigation practices. You know, um, yeah. So the, so the one the the one thing that we see for for what we do is um, you know we've reduced that, but these chemicals are more pointed. Like when they go out there, you know, they're just out there attacking you know, the, the mildew, they're not attacking the bees and, and stuff like that, which is fantastic. And sometimes, and this is what I would do if I played this game with organic, uh, you know, organic grapes is I'd be looking at some, some other options out there other than sulfur, because, you know, sulfur, you know, even though it's allowed for organic, you know, um, you know, a new chem nowadays would, would just go after the mildew, um, in one way or another, one of its modes of action. And, and uh, you know, sulfur goes out there, and it's broad spectrum, like, and it wipes out anything, or can affect the fecundity or of these other bugs, and you might end up with another issue in the vineyard. Plus, they only last seven days, so the so the diesel footprint, you know, because mm-hmm. um, a lot of the tractors run on diesel, the diesel footprint is like three times higher. So yeah, it's um, so it's a real question, and those are the if I was playing an organic game, those are the with with. Uh, organic viticulture that's the kind of stuff that i would try to do is you know reduce the you know reduce the uh the economical or the diesel footprint um and and uh and actually try to get the uh, the plant to do everything it's we want it to do essentially uh, with as low input as possible but yeah so we've seen you know typically in these vineyards seen really excellent um you know as a case in point um yeah, last several years like we a lot of guys will have to spray for um which anytime you spray a pesticide they're bad because you know it kills bugs in general and um even if you have them that are fairly pointed um and you know mites is a big issue um for dust and stuff like that you know especially out here in the desert the dry side of things and and um but what we've seen is by you know staying as low input as possible you know doing a lot of this farming up you know up front in the year um uh, what you end up getting is this really nice, um, you know, abundance of other bugs in the vineyard. And so we've seen in many cases, the vineyards I've ran for the last, uh, uh, 10 years that, you know, those populations will come up in the fall. And I have a, I have a fantastic uh, guy that does all my, um, my chemical recommendations and everything. And he comes out and he's looking at the beneficial populations. He's looking at the populations of the, of the bugs that we don't want. Right. And, and as he sees those comes up, come up, he's like, Hey, you know, don't do anything right now. Let's wait another week. And I'm going to watch the populations, the beneficials. And in many cases, those beneficials come in, you know, as soon as the the bad ones come up and they're eating and taking care of the other guys. And then guess what? Nature balances itself and, and it works out in the end. And so that's the kind of stuff that we're trying to wait for to use to, to see if it happens naturally. Cause if we went in there one time and we sprayed those, you know, now we've just up upset what population of the beneficials there were before they ramped up to take care of the bad guys. And we just, we just wiped out everything that we want. And, and then we would have to do remedial action in the year after and the year after and the year after. And, and then you end up in this, this downhill spiral that you don't want to be in. What's the one thing that that person who isn't on farms at all, doesn't know anything about farming, but you know, buys and eats food. What, what should they know about, well, I guess with you guys in particular, the wine that they're drinking from Washington State and any food and farming, what 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 should they know? You know, um, 
probably one of the biggest things from a you know from a standpoint of why or how we farm is like there's nobody out there you know i mean i i and i can't speak for the big companies that sell everything to the to the um the people but the individual farmers that are out there like we're trying to you know we're trying to make a living and we're trying to do the right thing and we're not going to do something that you know is going to screw up our one plot of land that we have to you know that's what we live on you know that's our livelihood so we're going to try and make the best decisions we can every day and um you know there's no reason for us to go out there and do more than we have to or or not pay attention enough and and so that's probably the biggest thing is you know it's like we're real people out here and we're trying to make the best decisions possible thank you for opening up and just sharing so much about what you do it's so obvious that you have a ton of passion for this. This is you're going to keep doing this forever. I don't know, man. You know, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, life changes and life does stuff, and I stay yeah. up, try to stay open minded to that. But yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as far as am I going to stop doing anything? No, I'll yeah. always be doing something till the day I die. Uh, there is, there's no such thing as retirement. I I washed that off a long time ago. Like we just. I'm just going to get up and I'm going to try to do a thing that I, that I enjoy the most every day. And, and this seems to be something that, that really challenges me. And so I've stuck to it, you know? Well, thanks for sharing some of that with us. Yep. This is the real food, real people podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. So there's a good chance that if you have some Washington wine, especially some of the really fancy stuff, uh, you may have had wine grapes grown, wine from grapes grown by Andrew Schultz and his team at Brothers and Farms. Um, I should have mentioned earlier, I recorded this conversation with Andrew before COVID stuff got crazy. So I bet some of those answers would be a little bit different as far as just the things that they're dealing with right now uh, to keep workers and people safe. Um, so... It's not like they're ignoring that there. I just wanted to mention so that some of that stuff makes sense. Um, maybe we should even follow up with Andrew. I'd be curious to hear how things are going because um, it certainly has presented additional challenges. Also, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but uh, if you do want to catch it, we earlier talked with one of Andrew's team, uh, Javier Valencia. You should look up. Uh, see what my googling skills are to to quickly check um what episode number that was i should have checked oh uh, episode 11 episode 11 was javier um so if you want to hear more about brothers and farms and from another team member there check that one out uh it's at realfoodrealpeople.org of course um what a cool guy and like i said i don't know if i said it on the podcast yet but i said it on social media um previously that after i got done talking with andrew i felt like uh can i get a job here uh, i'd like to work for you you just seem like a really smart guy really organized and really like cutting edge and just willing to try new stuff like not just doing it the same old way and that gets me pumped up about doing something whatever it is i i don't have any particular passion for growing wine grapes i grew up on a red raspberry farm so i guess it's not that much different and I think the whole red raspberry thing is pretty cool. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I'd i be interested to hear what your reaction is. And, and certainly um, feel free to anytime uh, send me a message, 
a direct message or post uh, something in the comments on any of our social media posts on Instagram. It's at RFRP underscore podcast. You know, RFRP, real food, real people. Um, at RFRP underscore podcast on Twitter as well. And then real food, real people podcast on, on Facebook, or I think technically it's RFRP dot podcast if you want to use the specific handle. Also, you can email me, Dylan at realfoodrealpeople.org. So I yeah, I think it would re- be really cool to hear um, what you think. Maybe you've got questions for people too. Um, I'd really like to start doing that, start making this more of an interactive process. Maybe um, questions or you know kinds of farmers or specific farmers you think I should go interview and talk to or, or just categorically like what kind of farmer. Um, I'd love to take your suggestions and, and also if you have any questions for a farmer out there. Um, and even farmers that we've talked with before, I guess it's not just farmers on this podcast either, but people we've talked with before, if you have questions for them, we can certainly follow up either with a podcast episode or like a short little uh, Q&A or something on social media. Uh, so s- let me know. Uh, I want to involve you in this process as well. Um, that's what it's all about. Other than, you know, this is podcast is, is documenting my, my journey um, is sharing these people's stories and I want it to be involving you in the story and in the conversation and in our food system here in Washington and the Pacific Northwest as well. So thank you again uh, for checking in, being with us this week and we will catch you next week back here uh, on the Real Food, Real People podcast. The Real Food, Real People podcast is sponsored in part by Save Family Farming, giving a voice to Washington's farm families. Find them online at savefamilyfarming.org and by Dairy Farmers of Washington, supporting Washington dairy farmers, connecting consumers to agriculture, and inspiring the desire for local dairy. Find out more at wadairy.org.